Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host... I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, paranormal detective. (laughs) All right. And in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1996. And we should have one more intro because in this episode, we are talking about the personal pick of our producer, David Rosen. Say hi, Dave. Hi, everybody. I'm David Rosen, producer podcaster compute I don't know but uh he was I'm, not I'm ready here he was not ready Josh <laughs> no he no Dave, that was me being ready guys. yeah <laughs> it's not like it's not like Dave hosts his own podcast where he has to do an intro in every single episode so mm-hmm. he would clearly never be ready to do that but yeah um, speaking of which uh I don't know about you Josh but I haven't been on that one in a while <laughs> oh I, I I think I have one coming up actually on the uh the old piecing it together podcast Hosted mm-hmm. by David Rosen, but uh, and Jason was on like three weeks ago. So I, I mean, you know, that's an eternity as far as podcasting, right? True. You, Josh, you feel like you hit home runs. You want to be up to bat again. You know what I mean? But this guy, you know, he likes putting a lot of minor leaguers in there. I guess I don't know. I don't understand your sports metaphors. So uh, <laughs> well, there are no sports right now, so I have to use the metaphors to keep me acclimated. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. So, Dave, what movie are we talking about in this episode? We are talking about Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. Yes, we are. And Dave, this was your pick. Do you want to give us a brief summary of why you wanted to talk about this movie? Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, I hadn't seen it in a long time. And I used to love this movie. And I was really excited to revisit it. I, as you guys know, I love like, you know, kind of silly over the top gore movies like the Evil Dead movies and of course, Peter Jackson's early work. And this was kind of, uh, I think, like the bridge between that stuff. And then once he went on to Lord of the Rings and King Kong and all that stuff. And uh, so it was a really exciting thing to see him at the time, you know, becoming a filmmaker, making this big movie with Michael J. Fox and and uh, and I had so much fun with it back then, and I, I thought it kind of lived up to what a, a more Hollywoody version of his thing would be. And uh, it was fun to finally revisit it now, and we'll get into what all three of us thought of it as we're going through this. We will indeed. This movie, when it was released in 1996, was not really a big hit either commercially or critically, although it did, as you say, uh, kind of serve as a bridge for Peter Jackson between his earlier independent stuff that he made in New Zealand and then his later big blockbuster type productions. I, I'm going to cut you guys off because that's twice now I've heard this poppycock. And you know how I feel about poppycock, guys. I, not, I don't know. I'm, I'm not for it. Okay. okay. <laughs> I mean, some people are we just like gonna, Are we just going to ignore <laughs> Heavenly Creatures 1994? Possibly you could argue his best movie of all of the movies he's ever made. I, I mean, know, I, I know what you're saying. This is a, this was the, the mainstream so-and-so blah, blah, blah. But heavenly creatures, I think was the one that afforded him all of these opportunities. Well, I mean, I think heavenly creatures is great, but I mean, in terms of the way it was produced, it was also a small independent production in New Zealand that eventually received all this critical acclaim. But in terms of making a movie, this is one where he worked with a major studio and a big budget and special effects and had Mm -hmm. that chance to take his filmmaking 
to the next level in terms of making the film, financing the film, and distributing the film. So I, I still think, I love Heavenly Creatures. I think it is a great movie and it's way better than this movie. But I, I think in terms of his career progression, this movie is the one that brought him into Hollywood. Right. I would say the exact same thing Josh was just saying. Right oh, now. thank and, you, Dave. Uh, and I'm <laughs> this gonna, is Dave's episode, so. Right. This might be the first, his first quote-unquote Hollywood movie, which obviously, as we know, he still made in New Zealand and still made it with his people, his company, you know, his special effects house. I'm going to say that the movie that brought him into Hollywood was Heavenly Creatures because of how of the uh, ripple effect of how how incredible of a movie it was and people that that's why they wanted to work with him. Right. No, I think you're absolutely right. But my point is he made these independent films kind of culminating in that in that movie and heavenly creature creatures. And that brought him to the attention of Hollywood. And then he got the chance to make this Hollywood film and that launched his career in that way. I think we're essentially saying the same thing. Yeah, but let's right. just, I think we are too, but let's just keep arguing about it for a while. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's always good. Can we talk some more about Poppycock? Let's see if we can uh, get into that. I mean, you have to admit there was some ballyhoo with your statements. So. Uh-huh. Mm. Anyway, as I was saying, The Frighteners, not a massive hit. It uh, it grossed $29.3 million on its budget of $26 million, which is not that great. I mean, if you take into account things like advertising or whatever, it may not have made much of a profit. It got mixed to negative reviews from critics. It was nominated for eight Saturn Awards, which is kind of like a sci-fi genre awards ceremony, including for Best Horror Film and Best Director for Peter Jackson. I think if you make a sci-fi or genre pick, they just automatically, they nominate you for something. That, that is possibly rule. true. Yeah. And I think we've talked about, I can't remember what it was. It might've been The Island of Dr. Moreau, but some some movies right. that, are, that are not good that do also get nominated <laughs> for the Saturn and, and I just want to say, and like, you know, we'll get into our feelings on this movie afterwards but this was a jackson you know directed film robert zemeckis exec produced it and their goal was to have it out around halloween and the studio moved it up the release date to like the big summer release july 4th uh, arena so like who are we really blaming on the fact that it didn't make money that's what i'm asking Right. Yeah. I mean, this was a movie that the studio had a lot of confidence in and maybe had too much confidence in, in that they they rushed it out during that period. They gave them a bunch of extra money in the budget to finish it in time, but it meant that some of the special effects had to be kind of pushed through where maybe they could have taken a little extra time to work on it. And not just that, the advertising was a bit murky. Like the posters were just like, what? And again, the real lesson here is don't fuck with Independence Day, bro. <laughs> yes, we learned that <laughs> yeah. in our previous episode. But I will say related to the the uh, advertising, and I, and I read that too, that Peter Jackson complained about the posters, that they didn't really tell you what the movie was like. But I remember at the time that this came out, those posters would show like the ghost kind of like pushing the, the wall, like uh, flexing or whatever with the ghost. Those are great posters. They're really evocative. Like, yeah, they don't tell you what the plot of the movie is. But I remember looking at that poster in 1996 and thinking, whoa, what is that? I want to see that. So I don't know if the marketing is really to blame here. It reminded oh. me of one of those box arts you'd see when walking up and down the aisles of Blockbuster in the horror sections. Yeah. yeah. No, you're right. You're right. I take it back. Uh, Peter Jackson, all your fault. Marketing people, <laughs> you guys are great. No, but I, I, I mean, if I'm going to defend Peter Jackson on it, I agree with you. The, 
cool imaging and, you know, like the kind of flip the card one way or the other and you're seeing something different. But uh, but maybe it didn't capture the tone of the film. Can we agree on that? Right. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think maybe that's true. And I can also say that that for me personally, I like seeing that poster thought, wow, that looks cool. I want to see that. And then when I did see it, uh, I was quite disappointed. So <laughs> maybe the marketing is to blame. That's your face. He just smashed, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> the movie, again, the the reaction from critics and from audiences was was kind of mixed to negative. It got a, a B minus cinema score uh, from the audience polling service, which is not great. Two thumbs down from Siskel and Ebert, who really Ooh. did not like it. Um, in his written review, Roger Ebert gave it one star. And uh, this is, I feel like, one, one of my favorite Ebert reviews that we've uh, that we've quoted in a while. He said, one of the more excruciating experiences for any movie lover is to sit through a movie filled with frenetic nonstop action in which, however, nothing of interest happens. The Frighteners is a film like that, a film that compels me to break my resolution never to quote Shakespeare's full of sound and fury signifying nothing. It's like watching a random image generator. It is better, I think, to sit through a movie where nothing happens than one in which everything happens. Last year, I reviewed a nine-hour documentary about the lives of Mongolian yak herdsmen, and I would rather see it again than sit through the Frighteners. So, that's Ebert. What what was that documentary called? I don't know. I should have looked that up. Maybe we can do that in a future episode. I kind of want to. I don't want to watch the nine-hour project, but I definitely want to research why it was a nine-hour documentary and everything. Yeah, that is a long. I mean, only like Shoah is that long, really. Right. and uh, we we talked on uh, Dave's podcast and piecing it together. Quick plug for you, Dave, uh, about Honeyland, about the uh, you know the bee the beekeepers and the bee farmers in uh, what what country was that in, Josh? Uh, Macedonia, I think. Yeah, which is a great movie, but that has nothing to do with the frighteners. But that's what the Mongolian yak farmer thing reminded me of. So <laughs> yeah, uh, that movie is. I, I found that movie kind of boring, but that's not really the subject of this podcast. Um, <laughs> other critics were kinder than Ebert and and Siskel were. Kenneth Turan in the LA Times said, The Frighteners is out of the ordinary run of things, the kind of major commercial project that usually comes from slick, standard-issue directors. It arrives this time courtesy of New Zealand's dark and eccentric Peter Jackson, with results that are saucy, scary, and pleasantly unsettling. Best known for the reality-based Heavenly Creatures, his most recent film, Jackson had an earlier career as the splatter impresario behind Bad Taste and Brain Dead. In The Frighteners, he returns closer to those roots, making a movie so busy and chaotic it creates the illusion of careening out of control directly in front of us. Jackson has added individuality to this audience picture and come up with a brash comedy of the paranormal that gets increasingly unnerving as it goes along. And I, I feel like that was sort of the point of this movie, that it was meant to be this combination between Peter Jackson's crazy early movies and a more accessible Hollywood movie. To me, that doesn't really work here, but I think that was kind of what he was going for. Careening out of control. Yes. Thank you, Jason, for repeating the words of the review. <laughs> Those are the ones that jumped out at me, Josh. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, and finally, Ken Tucker in Entertainment Weekly said... The Frighteners, which starts out like a screwball comedy with ectoplasm, then deepens into a movie about redemption, is directed by Peter Jackson, best known for 1994's Marvelous Heavenly Creatures. 
But viewers who loved that film's air of quiet menace may be put off by the cranked up pace and volume of The Frighteners. This movie is much more like Jackson's wacky 1992 horror film Dead Alive, which is to say The Relentless Frighteners is overloaded with jokes, including references to scads of modern horror films from Carrie to Gremlins, and unsettling special effects. The villain surges through walls, mirrors, and rugs with shocking speed. The Frighteners is also that rare horror film that actually gets better as it proceeds. This scare machine has a heart and a brain. I felt like it got worse as it proceeded. I don't know. I, I liked the way that it started, and then I felt like it increasingly lost my interest over time. I'm trying to give Dave some chances to comment. Dave, comment? I, I could comment all you guys want here, but um, I, I always enjoy so much hearing your back and forth banter. But oh, but no, I, I, I agree, though, with that review. I agree that the the frenetic energy, the like it goes so fast, unlike so many other movies that are kind of in a way, promising this kind of energy. And then you sit down and that's not what it is. And I think this movie delivers a hundred percent on just a real like kind of wackiness. And it's almost like a, you know, like a cartoon, which isn't, you know, I know depending on what you're looking for out of a movie, isn't necessarily the best thing in the world, but I think that it is delivering that. And I think that's what I love about it. Yeah, it definitely goes in a lot of different directions. And i that's one thing that is being praised there in that review. And on Siskel and Ebert on the show, they really disliked that. Ebert said something to the effect of, you know, it's a it's a comedy and then it's a horror movie and then it's an action movie and it doesn't do any of that well. It doesn't pay enough attention to any of those because it's doing all those things. You know, you're not getting any one of them done like at a high level at the highest level beyond the special effects. Yeah. So as I said, I I did see this maybe in 96 or, or soon after. I don't think I saw it in theaters and and I think it maybe didn't play that long. Again, it wasn't a huge hit, but I probably rented it at some point, likely because of that poster. I feel like I remember seeing that and thinking, what is that? That looks so cool and mysterious. And then watching it and thinking, well, that wasn't what I hoped for. So uh, Jason, had you ever seen this before? I did. I did see it in the theater, Josh, because as we know, I'm a more diligent uh, movie fan than you. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I saw it in the theater and I did not like it. And that's one of the reasons I was excited to revisit it, because obviously so much love for Peter Jackson now. And uh, if you'd like me to give my opinion, I can. But I think we are going to wait on that. We will get back to that. Uh, Dave, you, obviously you said you, you had seen this. Um, did you get to see it in the theater? I did. I'm almost certain I saw it in the theater maybe more than once because, like I said, I loved it at the time. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, let's come back then <laughs> and give our general thoughts on The Frighteners. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this episode of our season on the films of 1996. We're talking about the personal pick from our producer, David Rosen, Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. And unfortunately, I feel like this has happened, well, maybe just, just one other time with Dave's pick, where he brings us this movie that obviously means so much to him and that he loves <laughs> so much, and uh, we're not into it. So, but, but I should add to that, though, a movie I knew you guys wouldn't like. Um, oh, because, so you deliberately because, made us watch a movie. That this one, or the, you're saying this one is, or the ten was both. Both. Yeah, I, I, I had a feeling that you guys weren't going to like it because I know how just 
you know, just ridiculous it is. It's a very ridiculous no, movie, but and, so much fun. And that's why you're wrong, Dave, and you're about to lose your pick privileges in future suit. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> see, I thought the first half, see, as I said, I saw it in the theater and I didn't like it and I was excited to revisit it. And I think, Josh, as you were alluding to, the first half hour is a lot of fun and that's when it's at its wackiest. And then it just mm-hmm. changes tones and you're like, what the what the heck, dude? What are you doing here? Like, it's it doesn't have any of the expertise that we've seen from Jackson as a writer. And also, I think as a filmmaker in that first half hour, he's really moving the camera really effectively, like on dialogue. And then that just kind of goes away. Like, it just is, it becomes this mishmash where, like, you can't it's like you put too many ingredients in the recipe and now I can't taste anything, man. So um, I wish it would have stuck to the wackiness because it became something that it just, it was an effort. It was a slog to get through Dave. And out out of all the films in 1996 for you to pick this one, Dave, I really question what you're doing with yourself. I will meet you halfway and (laughs) say that, I don't think it's just the first half hour. I think it's closer to the first hour that is a lot of fun. I do think it loses some steam once they get to the hospital. And it's just, I don't know. It just, it's definitely could have been trimmed down a ton during that point. But I do think there was a lot more fun to be had than just the first half hour. I think, you know, once the Wraith is coming and going after everybody, I think is there's some really great effects going on there. I think it's just, uh, I think it's great. I like the effects. I like the effects. I'll give you that. And we know what Peter Jackson is capable with effects. And it's kind of cool that this, as you guys were saying, um, did kind of bring his effects house, you know, into the mainstream view, I'd say, uh, Weira or Weta, um, went from, uh, one computer to 35 computers to make this happen. It took 18 months of digital effects. One of the largest of at the time ever in uh, special effects. And yeah, but I mean, Hey, as we know, a movie can't survive on effects alone, Dave. Sure. Absolutely. That is is true. I I agree with Jason. I I thought I having, although I had seen it before, I didn't really remember that much other than that it, I hadn't really liked it that much, but I didn't recall the details of the plot or the pacing or anything like that. And so I do think in that first half hour or so, when it's this kind of silly supernatural comedy, and it's about Michael J. Fox as the the con artist guy with the ghost that he teams up with, and uh, they cause problems, and then he goes in and solves the problems and gets paid for them. I thought that was a clever concept uh, and a fun idea. I could see that being like a TV series nowadays. Mm -hmm. And so I was ready to enjoy it in that first part. And then I really feel like it just goes so far away from what's fun about it and what's entertaining about it as soon as we get, I mean, I guess it really almost starts in the beginning because it opens with the scene of the, the ghost terrorizing the two women or not really actually terrorizing them. We learn later, but I mean, it's already setting up this long-term plot. That's not at all interesting. Uh, That that part is fun though. You know, without knowing where it's going, you know, that is part of the frenetic pace and energy. But yeah, I mean, I agree with you that that plot just like I mean, dude, you know, writing the numbers in the head like it's it's super obvious where this is going, is it not? Yeah, that that's another thing is that it really drags out the whole like idea of there being a big reveal about what's happening. But as soon as you see uh, the news report about the the former serial killer or or spree killer, whatever you want to call him at the mental institution played by Jake Busey. 
it's clear that he's responsible. Like, there's no exciting solving of a mystery here. What's fun about the movie to me is Michael J. Fox as kind of the con artist guy and his interaction with the ghosts who work for him, who also end up just kind of like disappearing at a certain point later in the plot so that it can become this big showdown between Michael J. Fox, uh, Frank, I think is his character's name, and Jake Frank Garcia's Bannister. Villain. Frank Bannister. And, Good name. And the villain, as well as Jeffrey Combs as the FBI agent who comes in and is just like, I, I think Jeffrey Combs is great, but that character is so irritating and just like takes over the second half of the movie when he has absolutely no bearing on the plot whatsoever. I will let, let me just say, Josh, you have understated it. <laughs> Jeffrey Combs in this film gives possibly the worst mainstream movie performance I have ever seen an actor give. His wow. character is horrible. His interpretation is ridiculous. There's nothing, there's nothing here. All he does is drag this movie down and they should, you know, I know he's famous for the reanimator. They should have unanimated him for this. Oh <laughs> yeah. You were holding on to that one. I really wasn't. I just think like, honestly, I, I, those are those are heavy words that I'm saying. The worst possible mainstream movie performance I've ever seen. Dave, are you going to disagree with that? I assume he is. I, I liked him. <laughs> <laughs> what did you like about him, Dave? I, I just think it's such a ridiculous character. And I, I think it's exactly what I'm looking for out of what when I'm when I'm signing up for bigger version of the early Peter Jackson world. Uh, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a totally ridiculous, totally over the top. But he's in he's in those movies, and none of the other characters are. All these guys are in this more mainstream version. <sighs> and I think Josh, I agree with you. Michael J. Fox, kind of fun as this con man type. Once he became like serious and brooding, like I was like, dude, this isn't fun. This isn't the Michael J. Fox I want. Like I didn't even enjoy him, and I, I you know. It, it, it kind of bothers me that this was his last meet leading man role. Um, and yeah, cause like it just, it just didn't work, dude. And um, you know, he, he went, I get it. it you know, he's this pained clairvoyant type who's using the ghost to make money. And then he has to redeem himself, but that doesn't really work. Like it just, like it just flips without any type of um, realization, you know, or any type of journey for the character. And uh, there's just so much laziness in there that pissed me off. And you know, I hate laziness in writing, guys. Example, um, when they are at the hospital and um, we see Lucy, you know, trapped in the elevator and Jeffrey Combs, uh, what's his name? Milton, uh, Milton Dammers, right? Is at the hospital. Mm -hmm. And Michael J. Fox has no idea that this dude who's been trying to murder him is also at the hospital when he links up with Lucy. She's, he's like, Oh, I will go give, I will go put these ashes in the church. She had no point says, be careful. That man who is trying to kill you is also in the hospital, likely trying to kill you again. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I see where you're coming from, Jason. Yeah. I, I do think the writing <laughs> is, is very inconsistent in this movie. And I don't hate Jeffrey Combs here as much as Jason does, but he did increase. Like, I think the problem too is that when he first shows up, you're like, oh, here's this weird side character and that's okay. But he becomes such a central element of the movie in like the third act 
that he just takes it over and he sucks all the energy out of it because he's giving this ridiculously big, over-the-top, irritating performance that takes attention away from everyone and everything else. And he's not even important to the story. I had, so Josh, this basically takes place over like, Three days, it feels like. I mean, it's not it feels a real long like time. like three years but, when you're watching. But I, re- I mean, at one point, like, because Michael J. Fox, he starts calling Lucy loose. Like, they're on, like, nickname terms. And I'm like, where is this coming from? They were at dinner once and, like, now are on the run for uh, their lives. And, like, it, just little things like that bother me. Uh, at the end, when, spoiler alert, uh, there's a moment where Michael J. Fox's character goes to heaven or the other side or whatnot. Um, and he sees those two ghosts who have been helping him the whole time. Uh, that kind of nerdy ghost from the fifties is his name, Stuart, I think Stuart. He goes, ah, the chicks up here are great. And it's like, what we, this has never been a character trait of yours throughout this movie, you know, (laughs) like that you were just looking for afterlife babes or something like that. Like it's so inconsistent and just so below the capabilities of Peter Jackson. The only thing I could possibly say, you know, against what you're saying there, I, I completely get it, but I I'm watching this movie as like a live action cartoon and I don't look for script inconsistencies in a cartoon, but you know, Dave- but- it stopped being a cartoon ha- like a, a, a 30 minutes through, I think I is the problem like Josh and I, you you literally did say it did once it got to the hospital. What Josh no, and I, I said, are I said it is, slowed down. Da- I said it slowed down in the hospital. It wasn't as fun. But I think the movie itself, as a whole, I think keeps up for the most part almost the whole movie. I mean, and I I just yeah I disagree. I think it does start out in that cartoonish kind of mode, and it's funny and it's silly. But once we get bogged down in the the actual plot, which is about this guy who went on a murder spree and yeah. killed 15 people. Which is funny. I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, but I, I think I think that could, maybe even that could be funny, but I don't think the movie presents that as funny. I think yeah. it's presenting some stuff as funny, especially early on. And the idea of Frank as this fake ghost investigator and his little equipment that he shows up with and the little bag that he puts the ghost in and all of that is meant to be silly. But I think as as the movie goes on, it definitely takes itself seriously. It takes that storyline about the killer seriously. And also it takes the whole backstory seriously about Frank and his pain about his dead wife and his guilt and all that stuff, which didn't work at all. And Jason, you were talking about Michael J. Fox and I, I, I like Michael J. Fox fine, but I think he's horribly miscast in this movie. And he's kind of fun in that first part in the wacky part, but I feel like he really does not carry the other aspects of the character. I spent this whole movie thinking that Bruce Willis should have been the star of it. Oh, Josh, Josh, <laughs> alternate casting. I agree. I didn't think Michael J. Fox um, was at his finest here. I agree with you. Uh, so the names, the names being brought up, obviously, you know, at one point Zemeckis was going to direct this. And then he said, Peter Jackson, you should direct it because I don't want my name on this as a director, I think was what he said. Um, his name is all over it. It's like Robert Zemeckis presents. Right. I know. No. And like we said, the studio thought it was great and in high hopes. So Tim Burton was once the name that that would have been an interesting film if it would have not as interesting as Tim Burton's cabin boy, but whatever. Oh, right. Yeah. And then, Josh, the names that were going, Michael J. Fox was the first one they offered it to. Yeah. But they said if it wasn't him, these were the four names I read. Tom Cruise would have been interesting, weird. Same year as Jerry Maguire, right? 
Yeah. Matthew Broderick. No. No. Bad choice. Here are the two I like. John Cusack. Yeah, I could see that. That could work. And the guy who I totally think could have pulled it off and would have kept totally where it should have been, Danny DeVito. <laughs> that would have been a very different kind of movie <laughs> with Danny DeVito starring in. I'm not sure how Danny DeVito works as the romantic lead. because I could see him as one of the ghosts, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't know. Well, the romance isn't, it's not a romance anyway, though. Let's be honest. Like, the woman's husband dies, like, uh, th- three days ago and then they're on like a chase together and then at the end they have a picnic and that's the romance so well but it's clearly meant to be a romance sure you know obviously you didn't you didn't buy into it i kind of did i mean i think maybe i was just looking for something to hold on to and i thought like okay this is a little sweet i don't mind the romance aspect of it but uh i definitely don't think that would have worked with danny devito i feel like john cusack is a good choice there i mean i think the problems with this movie are not just about the casting obviously yeah it starts with the writing and yeah the writing is is a big problem for it and 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 the direction too i mean peter jackson is very talented but it feels like he's just not got a handle on what's going on here well like i said i felt like it was i mean in the first part with the way he was moving the camera it was like almost scorsese-ish and everything and it was kind of cool like moving on the dialogue and you know, David O. Russell comes to mind and then it just stopped and it became like, you know, schlocky, hacky. I I don't, it's not a horror movie. It's not, it doesn't go back to that schlock gore of like his past. There's only one big kill, you know? So it just is, yeah, it just meanders and it doesn't go anywhere. Can I point out one supporting performance I did like though? Of course. The, uh, the dead, the, the husband who died, the fitness freak who complains about the lawn played by Peter Dobson. I thought he was really funny and I wanted to see more of him. He was kind of funny. I mean, he's set up at first as like just this this total jerk, like he's almost going to be the villain. But once he dies, he's so like ineffectual, like he <laughs> he's completely lost his ability to connect with his wife. He's been cuckolded from beyond yeah, from a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so and so then he becomes just kind of funny. You're no longer threatened by him. And so I agree. Yeah. yeah, that was kind of a fun performance. And I feel like that had the right balance where like even though this character died and there's a kind of darkness to it, it still is able to be funny and I thought that that worked whereas most of the other aspects where you're meant to where it's meant it's meant to have that balance between the darkness and the humor, it really doesn't work. But with his character it did. Uh, I'm not sure if it worked with any of the other ghost characters or certainly with the villain. Chai McBride, we always like. He's He played, you know, kind of 70s Soul Brother number one, which we've seen him play. And I think Soul Plane also, you know. Um, I have not uh, seen Soul Plane, but. Yeah, but he's fun. And um, and John Astin as uh, the old Western judge, I thought was cool. Arlie Emery, right? He was in there as um, Arlie Emery. Is that his name? Ermy, uh, yeah. Arlie Ermy. Playing yes. uh, his Full Metal Jacket character for no reason in a graveyard. That, that... Yeah, that was just completely useless, that character. <laughs> yeah, it was, I agree. It was, again, it was like, hey, we got this guy. Let's have him just do the thing that he always does for no purpose. Right. And then, you know, that brings me to uh, yet another inconsistency, Dave. But, you know, what do I yeah, care I about this, logic? This review is getting more positive for a second. No. But, uh... You know, while they're in the graveyard and he finally has a chance to, uh, let's say get rid of the Jake Busey character who's now some type of magma T2 melted type thing. (laughs) Michael J. Fox's character does not finish the job because he turns around to shake the hand of another dead guy. Like, come on, man. This is not a good obstacle for him to overcome. I would have finished it, but I had to shake a man's hand. Yeah, it does feel like also they're just 
like stalling there at the end. Like we got to get a big enough climax. Like this is a Hollywood movie. We need some really big set pieces here. Let's let's drag the plot out until we can build to that kind of thing. And that's maybe also part of why Jeffrey Combs is so a big a presence because it's like, we need another villain. We can't just have Jake Busey. We need multiple villains because this is like a big Hollywood movie and that's what it requires. Did you, uh, Jake Busey, by the way, like made a life of this, you know, playing this character <laughs> until maybe Tomcats. Um, but uh, did did any of you pick up uh, that, that uh, Jeffrey Combs character was uh, somehow either victimized or related to the Manson family? I didn't get that until I read it. No, I saw that no. like in the Wikipedia entry and I kind of wonder if maybe that is wrong or that's something that was cut because yeah, I totally didn't get that either. Yeah. Mm -mm. Maybe no. Charles Manson was kind of guiding him on how to perform in this thing because he was yeah. in a totally oh, different man. world than the rest of us. That is, that I, I like is that. Comparing <laughs> his performance to Charles Manson. Um, should we, we talk a little bit? I feel like we should mention Trini Alvarado as Lucy, the love interest, who is basically the second main character of this movie. And this is really the only like major movie she ever had a big role in. And, and I kind of liked her. She was sweet. And for what that character is supposed to be, I thought she did a good job. I don't know if there was any alternate casting there that you found, Jason, but I had no problems with her. I had, I had no issues with her. Uh, and uh, what about D. Wallace Stone as um, the, uh, the, the, the lover or the follower, perhaps, who is still in love with the Jake Busey character even though he's dead for 15 years or 20 years yeah she's fine i mean d wallace is somebody who's like a horror icon and she's been in a million b movies and and cult movies and stuff like that and i yeah she was she was good enough she was crazy when she was meant to be crazy and she wasn't when she was not i mean i feel like compared to jeffrey combs who's also like this big cult icon her performance maybe fit a little more like it didn't overwhelm the scenes that she was in so uh, I, yeah, I was fine with her. Uh, okay, fine. No, what were your feelings on? Eh, I don't know. I mean, it's just like, 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 again, we're seeing things that don't pay off. Like, Hey, she's here at the beginning. Now we're not going to see this character for another 38 minutes. And now she's going to be a main character in the end of act three. Like it's just, it just not a, not a good weaving of this tapestry, Dave. Yeah, well, I agree, but that's not the actor's fault. No, no, I have no problem. I, I don't know. It's my I, fault, I wasn't clearly. interested. It's Dave's <laughs> yeah, fault. Yeah, yeah. We definitely <laughs> retroactively blame Dave for all the things that are wrong. We're vetting movie. you, Dave. From now on, your picks are vetted. No, I don't, mm -hmm. I'm not upset that we watched it. I just think 96 is such a strong year. I, I think you could have done better. I mean, I, I didn't want to go is, with an obvious. This is an important, like, sort of stepping stone in Peter Jackson's career, and Peter Jackson is like a major director, so I think it's it's worth a look. I will. I I do want to also talk about Jason. You mentioned the special effects, and it sounded like you you liked the special effects. I feel like this is one of those movies where maybe the special effects were impressive or groundbreaking at the time, but they do not hold up at all. To me, the effects look terrible. Yeah. Did you think? I think uh, that maybe showed its showed its own ass so to speak the most when when we had uh gary or gary Busey's son jake as the uh as that kind of grim reaper character and he was like a cgi kind of mobius blob i didn't think that was good and then uh i think the museum shootout scene was you know uh, not a good set piece at all no, no, it's not. And I mean, although the the whole climax in the in the hospital or whatever is much worse, I think. But 
Yeah, I mean, to me, the and, and the, the cool effect, the thing that like intrigued me in the poster with the ghost kind of bulging out of the wall, which was done, there was a very similar thing done in A Nightmare on Elm Street in 1984. And I feel like it looked better then with whatever practical effects they used, uh, as opposed to the CGI version in this movie and the, the ghost that's always like in the walls or it's under the rug or whatever. For all of the effort and money that went into this and it established uh, Weta as this major effects house, I feel like it doesn't, it doesn't look good now. I mean, maybe you can acknowledge that it was an important milestone, but I don't feel like watching it that I was impressed with it. I'd agree that it's a mixed bag as far as effects are concerned, but I thought some of it was really, really cool. Like I, I, I still think the Wraith is just one of, it's just done so well. I thought it's so so fun and exciting and kind of freaking scary to be honest. So like, but, but then like the ghosts were, you know, a very cheap looking effect for how much it probably cost, you know, did you really find anything about this movie scary, Dave? Not, not the movie so much, but the way that that character is brought to life, I thought was pretty damn scary. The the Jake Busey character. Yeah. Yeah. Like when it reached into people's uh, chests and stuff like that. I, I think that that is a very effective scare. To be I know. It's so boring and lame. <laughs> You're boring and lame. Yeah. There we go. So um, should we give you what you want to give Dave the final word on this to say something positive before we give our ratings? I, I, I don't know if he's ready for this. And Dave, if you can, if you're not, you can save this for the epilogue. But were there any other movies you were considering for your pick? Well, there's a lot of a lot of obvious ones that I was considering that we just didn't cover this season. I mean, things like uh, like Fargo, like Waiting for Guffman were, were things that I considered. But I knew that those were ones that were, people were going to probably recommend we do, you know, and it's like. I love this movie. And I was like, no, I'm going with Frighteners. No, no. Hey, man, we uh, we quote unquote respect that. <laughs> no, I do. I think it's interesting to have a movie that isn't an obvious choice and we can take a look at it because someone loves it. I mean, I kind of felt the same way when I picked Lone Star, which is not necessarily the most obvious. And I, I could have picked some more famous movie, but I wanted to go with something that I really like that's not talked about as much. And I, that worked I, out better for us, I think. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. You should you should pick what you want. I just think this was such a strong year, and there were so many other good options. Uh, no, you should not sure. have picked what you wanted. No, I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> so Josh, let's rate it out of uh, out of what uh, five old haunted mansions? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give it as as negative as negative as I was. I was mildly entertained at points, so I'm going to give it a two and a half out of five. I don't think it's horrible. I'm going to give it two, and it's the second worst movie we've covered in this entire series. In this entire, in like our whole podcast? Yeah, absolutely. The only worst so, movie was I Know Who Killed Me with Lindsay Lohan. So wait, are you saying that you think that North is a better movie than this? Yes, I am saying that right to your face. Oh my face. God, wow. wow. Okay. And you know, if, if I am going to uh, recall one movie that uh, this reminded me of that we covered, I would go back to season one, Cemetery Man, uh, which is just a wild, crazy, just cluster that doesn't work in a much more beautiful way than this. I was going to say, I think Cemetery Man is probably a movie that Peter Jackson admires and would want to emulate. And I, I agree that this is 
like a, a poorer version of that. So Dave, do you want to, so I give it two haunted mansions and I give Dave negative seven haunted. <laughs> well, I I'm going to die on this hill and give it four. <laughs> do you really, that? but honestly, do you really believe having watched it and now agreed with some of the criticism that I mean, it deserves for or do you really think it's closer to a three Dave? I think we it, can credit uh, Dave with his own taste. Come on. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a personal four. Let's. I'm not. I'm not rating this based on you know merit or anything like that. No. <laughs> are you? Person, I'm on the, upon four. the rewatch. Did you really feel yeah. this was a four out of five? Oh, I I loved it. I had so much fun with it. Yeah, it was great. <sighs> yeah. Well, on that note, we'll come right back and talk <laughs> about the legacy of the Frighteners. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we've been beating up on our producer, David Rosen. <laughs> Former producer, <laughs> David Rosen. <laughs> for his pick of Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. And I mean, I will say, as much as we maybe didn't really like this movie, it is a very important movie in Peter Jackson's career. And Peter Jackson himself is an extremely important director. He's a major figure in Hollywood and has been for the last 20 years or so. Yeah. Um, and it does have his fan base, not just Dave. Yeah, that's true. It's a, it's a bit of a cult thing. Again, it didn't it Represent. didn't make a ton of money when it first came out. And uh, it didn't get great reviews, but I do think as Peter Jackson's career has grown, more people have probably looked back on this after seeing later Peter Jackson movies, after seeing the Lord of the Rings movies uh, or something like that and wanting to know what else he did. People have probably looked back on this and have enjoyed it. And it, it did give him the chance to move into those big Hollywood blockbusters that even if it wasn't a massive box office success, obviously, as we alluded to earlier, the studio loved it. They, they had a lot of confidence in it. Robert Zemeckis was a big fan of Peter Jackson. And this is one of the reasons that he got the chance to make those Lord of the Rings movies afterwards. And also, apparently, he was offered, while making this movie, was offered to do the remake of King Kong, which he didn't end right. up doing until after the Lord of the Rings movies. But that was a huge project for him that he uh, had always wanted to do. So, I mean, I think if you're looking back at Peter Jackson, this is an important movie on that path. And you can see how it helped him transition from those early crazy movies that we were talking about, like Bad Taste and uh, and Dead Alive or Brain Dead. It, it had under both of those titles, mm -hmm. which are really kind of gonzo and, and nuts and weird to do something a little more not even a little, a lot more mainstream, like those big epic Lord of the Rings movies, which he kind of got a little too caught up in, I think, when he made the Hobbit movies. But, um, well, mm -hmm. you know, the thing is, um, I think this was almost like a, a freebie for him, like uh, because people were impressed with what he did. And, you know, they he had already been offered like King Kong, like you said, like after this, you know, commercial failure, like if. Lord of the Rings didn't hit. I think we would have only heard of Peter Jackson as like a little, you know, oh, there's this guy in New Zealand making TV now or something like that. Like that, that was a make or break for him. And I think that also was part of the kind of result of how this was received. Yeah. Well, I mean, those Lord of the Rings movies were like a huge risk on his part and on the studio's part. And obviously, yeah, if they had failed, then his career probably would have been over. But I mean, we would have been talking about him on the along the lines of like Richard Stanley, who we talked about 
with Island of Dr. Moreau, who also, you know, started out and made these small, independent kind of weird movies and got a chance to go into Hollywood and then flamed out. But Peter Jackson rose to that task, obviously. And I I think it's been a long time, but I remember thinking those Lord of the Rings movies were brilliant. I agree. And then, you know, the Hobbit movies, again, it kind of like got to be too much and he got a little too into the idea of just doing this stuff over and over again. And I'm I'm mixed on what he did later. I think I, I thought King Kong was okay. Uh, Jason, I know you were a big fan of his World War One documentary, "They Shall Not Grow Old," that came out recently. Fantastic! Yeah, I love I love all three Lord of the Rings. I'd honestly say, I mean, I haven't seen the Hobbits, but if we were if those didn't exist, the Lord of the Rings, I think, is the best trilogy ever. Like just as a trilogy. So, um, and then I avoided the Hobbits because I didn't I didn't want to ruin it. Like I ruined Star Wars for myself. Um, <laughs> but I do. They Shall Not Grow Old is it was one of my favorite movies of what was it, 2018 or 19? I think that is really showcasing the absolute most brilliant aspect of what he's able to do with effects, which is, again, to use the word reanimate, they take old World War One footage and bring it to life, colorize it, kind of bring it into your face. It's not, it's 3D, but it you don't have to see it in 3D to really feel it. Like, it's incredible. I love it. I will watch any documentary that comes out with this type of technology. I know he's doing the Beatles one next. So mm-hmm. look, no, no hate on Peter Jackson. Some up, some down. King Kong was mixed, right? I mean, if Dave had the same track record as Peter Jackson, we'd let him go on this one. <laughs> well, I feel like uh, Dave has given us three picks. One For me personally, uh, last season we talked about UHF, which is- Yeah, like that was my- fun. Yeah, and that's one of my favorite movies ever. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm okay with uh, going with Dave for what he it, picks next. Is this, is this what we talked about today? Worse or better than the ten? This is worse. Okay. Uh, I think this is better, actually. And, and honestly, I don't, I, I don't mind seeing either. But I kind of did want to see the ten because it had gotten through. Um, but Dave, again, I'm a little worried because last, last time was Weird Al. This time, Peter Jackson, are you just picking people who have similar hair as you do? (laughs) (laughs) We're going to watch a a John Turturro movie next. uh, (laughs) I would love that. Yeah. Uh, Dave, have you been a a Peter Jackson fan through his later career after this? It's a little complicated. I completely agree with Jason about that documentary. I think it's so amazing. Um, I... I love King Kong, even though it's just so completely overblown. I I fully recognize all the flaws in it, but I just, I love it so much. The Lord of the Rings movies were great at the time. I can't picture ever rewatching them. And I didn't see The Hobbits either. I had enough at that point. And we should never speak of the lovely bones. But yeah, I mean, I still, I root for him. I, I, he always says he wants to go back to, uh, dead alive, bad taste, like that yeah, kind of thing, and, and do sure. like a just for fun project. I hope it happens before, you know, I'm too old to appreciate it or something. You know, <laughs> yeah. I always, I always think of him along the same lines as Sam Raimi, and I know you're a big fan, uh, mm-hmm. Dave, of Sam Raimi, and I think he similarly started with these crazy early low budget horror comedies, and then became a big Hollywood guy and did some really great blockbusters uh, and some maybe not so great blockbusters. Um, but he he did go back and he made that movie Drag Me to Hell that was kind of yeah. in the spirit of his earlier films. Yeah, and I like that movie a lot. Mm-hmm. So I, I would love to see Peter Jackson do a similar thing to that. But but again, uh, and we kind of, uh, we mentioned it earlier, like, dude, the movie to see here is, like, I get it, a schlock early gore, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and like, you know, like, I, like I, they shall not grow old. That should be required viewing in, you know, every school. But like 1994, 
you know, any of us could have picked it was uh, Heavenly Creatures. We might even mention it on our epilogue. Like, that's the one that stands out as like an outlier of like, whoa, this guy can really do like we haven't seen him do another movie like that. Maybe he's a, he attempted it with like Lovely Bones, but like that movie is awesome. I agree. That is awesome. And I do think he was kind of trying to recapture some of that with the lovely bones and it didn't really work. But yeah, I think when that movie came out, it seemed like he could have been someone maybe instead of a career that more closely resembles like Robert Zemeckis uh, or even Sam Raimi, he could have had a career that was more like Terry Gilliam and do these kind of weird magical realist things that take on serious themes. And and that did definitely did not happen. But I think Heavenly Creatures has that really effective balance and i haven't seen it in a long time but i i do remember thinking it was it was great you know uh is it weird though that you know he made that movie and you know we know it's kate winslet and melanie linsky and then he named the lead female in this movie her last name is linsky melanie linsky has like a two-second cameo right. in this movie she plays one of the other police officers and she doesn't even have a line, but I don't necessarily think that that's weird. I mean, I think that movie like Melanie Linsky is also, I think from New Zealand and right. they, they kind of both, they both broke out with that movie. I'm sure they have like uh, a bond because of that. So he named a character after a friend of his. I think that makes sense. All right. All right. All right. I'll give you that, Josh. <laughs> yeah. Here's a fun piece of trivia. Two movies from 1996 featured covers of Don't Fear the Reaper. This was one. The other was... I don't know. I'm not sure. Just give us the answer. <laughs> Scream. The movie is called Scream. Oh, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. That makes sense. I had one more thing on the legacy. Please, yeah. Very important thing, Josh. Yeah. Uh, I was, you know, I mentioned that I like Peter Dobson in this movie. Yeah. New Jersey native, by the way. And I looked yeah. him up and, you know, he was a working actor. But it said uh, he completed a movie last year. And get this, Josh and Dave. The movie's called Asbury Park. And now let me read you the log line to Asbury oh, Park. No. Oh, Hot no. summer nights, neon lights, and rock and roll filled the air as the last of the greasers held onto the boulevards in 1994 Asbury Park, New Jersey. Sign me up, buy me a ticket, take my money, baby. Yeah, thank, thank goodness we got a Bruce Springsteen <laughs> reference. In I didn't episode. say anything about Bruce Springsteen. You just associated mm-hmm. it because mm-hmm. that's what you would associate mm-hmm. it with. I'd watch that. I'm of sure course you'd watch that. It. it does sound like the Wild, the Innocent, and the E Street Shuffle like as an album. Like, hey, let's just turn this into a movie, though. You're right. Yeah. I feel like we have to talk about Michael J. Fox in the legacy here, though, because as Jason, as you said earlier, this was basically the last like leading role that he had in a movie. He yeah. went on right after this to star in Spin City on TV, which was a huge hit and went on for many yeah. years. And uh, of course, he had a lot of his and continues to have his health issues, but he's managed to he's worked really through all of that. And still, though, basically just in TV, he had another sitcom that I think lasted for like one season called The Michael J. Fox Show. And he had guest stars, uh, guest starring arcs on like The Practice. And I think even recently. Rescue Me. Rescue Me. There you go. And on The Good Fight recently. So, but I mean, there was a time when Michael J. Fox was like the biggest star in Hollywood. And it seemed like this was basically like the end of that. Well, well, two things about that. Yeah, he does definitely catch. Like, you know, we hear the girl next door. Michael J. Fox is the boy next door, right? Like, he could totally be your pal, your buddy, you know, the guy you hang out with. But I, from what I read, he chose after this. Like, he he just like, I don't want to do this anymore because he wanted to spend more time with the family and, you know, be be a dad, be a husband. So he that's why he went to TV and 
And that's kind of how that happened. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it worked out fine for him, but I just, I think again, like I almost forgot that he was such a big star, even going all the way into 1996. And I, I mean, I knew he was the star of this movie, but I guess like the idea of like a major Hollywood movie starring Michael J. Fox in 1996 didn't quite compute to me, but I mean, hmm. obviously at, he was the number one choice. What's right? your favorite Michael J. Fox movie, not named back to the future. Man, I don't know. I feel like I haven't seen uh, a lot of those movies. So. I got an answer. Yes. The Frighteners. Oh. <laughs> oh <boo>. Set <laughs> him up for that you're, one, Jason. You're a yeah. garbage pile, dude. So. Um, we, we mentioned Trini Alvarado, who really never became a, a, a big star. She was very much not into being in the spotlight, and she hasn't even acted in recent years. And I think Weta, that's a big thing here, too, that this was a movie where they demonstrated what they could do, and now... That's one of the like major special effects houses yeah. in the world. And my issues aside with the effects, obviously, like as a showcase for that company, this movie was a huge success. Hey, you remember uh, Michael J. Fox on uh, Scrubs? Didn't he play like a tormented doctor for? Uh, oh, all right. So. I don't know. I, I wasn't. I, I wasn't a Scrubs viewer, so I missed that. But Amer uh, right. American President, that wasn't your favorite, Josh. I have not seen that actually. But given how much attention we pay to Rob Reiner on this podcast, <laughs> maybe we'll do an episode about it in the future. Doc Hollywood. What about the hard way with uh, with James Woods? I remember that I, one. Yeah, I remember seeing that as as like a twelve year old or something. But I I can't really speak to anything about it. I think I saw Doc Hollywood as well. But of course, the major thing about Doc Hollywood is how it was re remade by Pixar as Cars. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> Let's not forget uh, Michael J. Fox in Light of Day. With um, the uh, theme song written by Bruce Springsteen. Okay, coming up next week. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Dave, did you want to say anything else about the legacy of the Frighteners? Teen Wolf? I, I, ju <laughs> I just would leave it with, the, you know, like you guys did mention, there is like a, a kind of a bit of a cult following for this movie. And so to those of you out there, I, I hope I did a, a good enough job trying to defend it a little bit. We'll see if the cult of the Frighteners comes after us for this, <laughs> for this movie. So that's the Frighteners. And that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. We're on social media at awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris, comedy on uh, Facebook, Instagram. Go for jason.com. Winning Webby Awards left and left and right, uh, and uh, Jay Harris comedy on Twitter. You can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at SignalBleed on Twitter. And as much as we gave him a hard time, you should definitely listen to our producer David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to this great podcast and also follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where I'm hoping to get a nice long thread going uh, talking about this movie. Soon. I think you'll get, you know, we know there's going to be a few who side with you on this one. Hi, Chad. Yeah, a couple of weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> what do we have on our next episode, Jason? Hey, it's our real future cult classic. Not like this bum of a movie that we just covered. The cult classic from 1996, the very controversial David Cronenberg picture, Crash. That, talk about a crazy movie. That is going to be an interesting discussion. So tune in next time for Crash. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. 
Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.